Hey guys, and welcome to the Movement Docs Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Mike. And we're just two guys who want to help students and clinicians grow in the field of rehab. Welcome to the show. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's kind of the, you know, the pathophysiological stuff, uh, you know, for acute injuries, you know, you know, concussion management and all this stuff. And really, I think we need to need to work on more objective measures. Um, you know, there's, um, baseline testing and that type of stuff. And I mean, that's a bit of a contentious issue. Um, but you know, a lot of people in the U S especially they do, just impact yeah. testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 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 I mean, the impact test by itself um, is is not really um, as effective as having a more comprehensive approach. Uh, and there's been a few studies that have that have shown this, but um, you should have some objectivity to it. And you know, having a baseline has been shown to be more effective than just relying on people's um, you know normative data because the normative data ranges for this type of stuff is, is extremely wide. Um, but a lot of people in the U S just rely on kind of the computerized testing. Um, but a lot of the research now is showing that you need kind of more than that, right? Because any one of these tests is going to have some, some, some inherent kind of test retest reliability issues. And so having a, you know, a broader approach or having kind of a battery that assesses kind of multiple areas is, is kind of the way to go. Um, and so that's kind of where, like that, that's, that's what our program does too. So I'll, I'll kind of highlight my bias there on that, but, but we try to take a more comprehensive approach just because that's what the research says that we should be doing. So trying to add that objectivity into our program is our way of trying to, you know, figure out a better return to play step rather than just saying, okay, just using symptom self-reported patient, you know, symptom guides. Um, and so we'll actually do physical exertion testing. For example, in the clinic, we have a test that we use from, from, from the Blackhawks. Uh, and then they'll also go back to practice. They'll do treadmill testing and all this different stuff. And then once they've passed all of these kind of hoops, then we'll run them through their repeat baseline. But it includes, you know, the neurocognitive piece, but it also includes, you know, balance, reaction time, memory, concentration, um, you know, visual tracking and a whole bunch of other stuff that goes with it, right? To try to have a better overall picture than, than just one. But I think adding some objectivity into what you're doing um, is, is, is going to be the way to kind of make these yeah. safer. And I'd always, I'd always wondered about that because, you know, just from the experiences I've had, we've we used impact a lot. Um, and so, you know, all the athletes will get like their baseline testing, you know, I'm using air quotes, but you can't see it because, you know, um, but yeah, yeah. They, they'll do like yeah. their baseline on impact and then, uh, you know, somebody gets concussed and then, you know, we'll do like the symptom checklist and then, uh, you know, take the impact test again and they have to pass that impact test to go. But, you know, I've heard like some athletes will just like sandbag the impact test and then they'll do great when they, they take it later. So they, so they can, you know. I guess like fake the test or cheat the system or, or one way or another. And I never, I never liked that. Yeah. And so I really like that you, you guys are going for this really comprehensive and thorough approach to, to really determine exactly, you know, when they're ready to go. And come back. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's going to be an inherent limitation of anything, right? Like if somebody's not going to take it seriously, there isn't really much you can do as a clinician to try and, you know, 
make sure that they're giving their full effort. Um, you can try. I mean, impact is, 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 is actually a really good test. Um, but, but it obviously can be beaten. Um, but they have, they have, um, um, kind of validity indicators built in so that, you know, people really don't know how to fail. Uh, you know, if you let, if you, if, if somebody's trying to fail, they tend to overfail to the point where mm. it's almost ridiculous, you know, like somebody, um, you know, like they, they've done studies where they'd find somebody with, with like severe, you know, brain injury would be able to complete it. But yet you as a healthy person are getting more scores. Like this doesn't add up. Right. And so they find, so they, they've, they've put in these kind of validity indicators to kind of flag people that are trying to, to bomb uh, the baseline. Uh, and then there's other, there's been other studies that have actually used other um, effort metrics involved and they find that it's actually a lot lower than what people think. Right, a few a few clowns will try to do it, but I think it's less than ten percent. They found in previous studies actually try to uh, to perform poorly, you know, on it. So, so that, that's good to know, like in our in our yeah. space. But you know, every once in a while, I'll get a I'll get an athlete, and usually kind of more on the professional level, um, semi pro level for whatever, and they're the ones that they come in and they just they're I'm I'm trying to make a return to play decision, and they just demolish their baseline, <laughs> and you go okay. You know, I know what you were doing. <laughs> yeah. Something's not adding up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So for like, I guess the, I mean, obviously you guys do con ed courses and stuff like that to learn how to, um, you know, assess concussions more effectively. But for, you know, like the general high school AT out there in the middle of America, what kinds of things can they do to just kind of step up their concussion assessment game? That's, that's, that's I mean, read as much as you can. I mean, try to, <laughs> try to you know, expose yourself, take courses. Um, you know, we got to take the right courses too, because there's a lot of ones out there that are super basic, you know, like they got courses that are out there that are still advocating for rest and that type of stuff. Right. So you got to really make sure that if you're going to take a course, make sure that it's, it's one that, you know, is, is up to date and, and um, you know, one that's on, on top of their stuff. But um you know, you got a lot of, you know, you got a lot of volunteer coaches too, right? You got a lot of people that, that have no medical training that, um, that are, that are trying to, you know, deal with these decisions and try to decide if does this kid have a concussion or not have a concussion. And I mean, those are, those are tough decisions, right? Um, I think you guys are a lot better than we are, uh, in terms of having coverage, you know, at a lot of sporting events. But, um, I read a quote, um, in a journal that said something like, I think 25% of every high school, um, sporting event in the U.S. doesn't have so one quarter doesn't have an ET on the sideline. Um, I mean, if you were to get into Canadian sports, I mean, I think you'd probably have that flip the other way. You'd only see 25% that had somebody that had some sort of medical background um, on, on on the sideline. So I think you guys are doing better than us, but still, right? You got a lot. Of, you, you're handing these decisions off to a lot of people that don't really have. Um, the training to be making the decisions, right? But uh, one of the things we've tried to do to, to get around that is um, we have a, a course for, you know, coaches and trainers type of thing. Like, and we say trainer by meaning like, you know, the volunteer dad who's the, you know, registered as the trainer on the bench um, that with no medical training. Uh, so we have, you know, kind of an hour-long course for that, just identifying symptoms, trying to help them to understand a little bit about the pathophysiology, you know, just because, it, you know, a kid that got hit and came off complaining of symptoms, just because five minutes later they're saying they're fine, doesn't mean that they're fine, right? Because that second phase, that second phase is coming. They just don't, they just don't know it yet. 
right? So trying mm-hmm. to kind of educate that and bring a little bit more depth to the education rather than just that surface level, you know, here's the symptoms and when in doubt, sit them out and all that, you know, like let's, let's, <laughs> let's teach people why. Let's teach people why they have to sit out, right? Let's let them understand, right? Like anybody listening to this right now is going to go, holy shit. Sorry, I swear. But it's okay. you, it, it, they're, they're going to take a second guess. You know, they're going to take a second thought before they put that kid back out there. And they're going to understand why they're taking that second thought. You know, and I think that's a big thing is don't just, don't just regurgitate, you know, surface level information. Give people the depth. Let people understand. And if people understand, you're going to get a lot further in a lot of this stuff. Right, so I'd say for the the ATs that are out there, um, I mean, we have courses. Um, we have a um, like a full clinical course, which is about 35, 40 hours long. Um, you know, but if you're just looking for kind of that, you know, that basic information, we have a, what's called the level one course. Uh, they can find that by going to completeconcussions.com. Um, but you know, try to find courses, read. Things are changing at such a rapid rate. Like I said, we update our protocols on a monthly basis. There are like hundreds of studies a month being put out on concussion, and we have to then take our medical advisory team and kind of sift through them all to try and find out how does this change, you know, what we're currently doing. Does it change what we're currently doing? What's the level of evidence here, and how does that, you know, um, either affirm or kind of combat what it is that, that we think we know? Um, and I think that's, that's a big thing, too, because people get set in that mindset, and I think we were talking about that a little bit earlier. Yeah. Do you, when you're, when you're looking for the articles and all that kind of stuff and trying to collect all this information, I'm just trying to think like for anybody that's interested in, uh, like trying to read up and all this kind of stuff, are they like, should they look for specific journals or should they subscribe to different, you know, like article databases or any of that kind of stuff? Or what would you recommend? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of cheating the system. Uh, don't tell anyone, but I have a, uh, I have a password through university that, uh, that I have through a friend. Um, so I, I have, I have like, I have like database access, which, which helps a lot to getting, you know, full journal articles. Cause you know, sometimes it's quite hard. There's not a lot out there that are open source, um, open access, but, uh, I mean the top journals in this area, you have uh, British journal of sports medicine, uh, they put out the the international consensus statement each time, so they're you know the most well known journal probably in the space. You have uh, American Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, the Physician in Sports Medicine. You have Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, any of the sports medicine journals, I think, um, are are awesome. Um, the uh, actually a journal um, of athletic training. Um, is, is really good as well. There's a lot of really good articles in there. Uh, American Academy of Neurology. I mean, I mean, the list goes on. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say subscribe to one specific journal because the articles are so widespread in so many different journals that you kind of really gotta, you gotta, you know, I think the database access is really what you gotta try and get your hands on, um, or find somebody that's mm-hmm. this kind of summarizing that evidence. Like I said, we put. So what we do, just to kind of give you an idea of how we do it, we have. Um, I have Google Scholar Alert set up, and we have another researcher that, that works with me closely that has a has the same thing set up. And we, we search you know specific terms. So anytime research articles get published on those specific terms, we then go in, read the abstracts, see how it applies, download the article, synthesize it, and every month we then put out a research update to all of the clinics that are within our network. Everyone who's a who's a certified CCMI practitioner, 
gets those updates so that they're always kind of getting this. Mm. So they don't all need, you know, access. They don't all need to read the full articles, but they're going to get kind of that, that synthesis of here's all the information you need to know. And this is how it changes what you're currently doing. And this is how you should think about what, you know, the, you know, this particular item or area. And then if they want, you know, if they say, you know, can you send me that full article? I'll just, we'll just put it up on, uh, we have kind of a, a central repository that, uh, that we just put stuff. We have a Facebook group too. We kind of chat stuff out. So, uh, it's pretty interesting to have 500 different people <laughs> in a group, in, in, in a group, you know, posting cases and things like that. So, um, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> so how do you, how, do, how would one become a CCMI practitioner, is that like on an individual basis? Do you do it like, is it like a clinic, like a lease or membership or something like that? How does that work? Yeah, the, the agreement is, is essentially through the, the clinic. So um, because clinics are more stable than um, practitioners, practitioners tend to kind of go and, and, and come and go. Um, and so what we do is we actually have a partnership uh, formed with the clinic. So, you know, let's say it was, it was, it was, it was one of your guys' clinics, um, you know, we would we would form that agreement with you, uh, and and basically provide all of the training for your staff, all the people that are going to be involved in that. And then we put you, we'd give you an account on our system. We would put your logo and uh, information and pin on our map. Um, and it's kind of strength in numbers too, right? Because when people go to concussions, like because we have so many clinics and such a broad reach, you know, we come you know pretty close to the top of Google in a lot of areas, especially where we have clinic presence. And so it just helps people to find you and then you're listed as a complete concussion management clinic. So people coming, clicking on it, finding, you know, your particular clinic uh, can then, you know, make an appointment book in um, and then and then basically yeah you're, you're you're in our program once you've completed the training once you have the certification so the clinic kind of remains that certified clinic provided they have at least one or two um, certified practitioners that are that are around kind of all the time uh, and if the practitioner leaves and they happen to go to another clinic most of the time they say hey I'm moving over to this clinic I want to get this clinic certified and provided the clinic fits with what it is like I mean we don't just let any clinic on we uh, we really kind of look at who the clinic is who their staff members are, whether or not they have the right space, whether or not they're treating the right demographic of, of, of patients, you know, that type of stuff. Um, what's the, you know, we really like multidisciplinary collaborative because there's a lot of skill sets that, that, um, you know, differ. And there's a, because concussion so broad, there's a lot of areas that it impacts. So, you know, having more professionals under one roof is always better, um, that type of stuff. So, I mean, um, in order to kind of start the process, uh, if you go to completeconcussions.com, I think slash become a clinic, uh, or, I mean, you could just navigate through the searches and find it, but you just fill out uh, a form uh, and then we kind of get in touch with you and start the conversation and, and try to see if it's a fit. Huh. And then, and then all the content, the content stuff's on there too, I'm assuming like signing up for like, is it all online courses or are they in-person in courses? They're all online. We used to do, um, we used to do in-person. And so we'd fly out, we'd have like, you know, a bunch of people fly out to wherever and spend a weekend. But the courses became so in-depth that trying to get through that material in three days was just a nightmare. Um, so we've, we've spread it out now. So we give people, um, you know, uh, I think we give them, you know, four to six weeks or something like that to, uh, to complete the training, but it's, it's a, it's a course, man. Like it's, it's a full curriculum. So there's, there's 12 modules and, uh, it starts off, um, heavy hitting with uh, Berlin consensus statement, uh, which is the new international guidelines. And then it goes right into pathophysiology and it gets into all those blood flow mechanisms and, uh, like you think I went deep here, <laughs> you will understand. Like you know, that's, and that's and that's the whole thing, right? Make people understand. 
don't just give them surface. I could just hand you the Berlin consensus statement or you might have read it and think, yeah, I know what to do. But do you really? Do you really understand, you know, like what is going on behind the scenes? Do you really understand if you have a patient with, you know, specific things? Like do you really, you know, how comfortable do you feel in applying that, you know, that management practice or whatever to that to that particular patient? So that's the whole idea is, is make people understand and then they'll truly be great practitioners and be able to help people. Hmm. That's, that's great. <laughs> so I'm so happy I have like over the ear headphones right now because my brain is like melted in so many different direction places. It's helping keep it in place. <laughs> so I can't even like. No, I, I, I love that. Uh, <laughs> what else you want to know about? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm rolling here. I'm uh, having fun. Let's go. <laughs> oh, so kind of kind of going back, we talked a little bit about. Um, the different like impact testing and stuff like that. Uh, do you want to maybe talk about like the scat five VOMs? Are those things we should be using on the field? Are there other like kind of objective tests that we should be using like for acute stuff? Um, I mean, I mean, scat five is, is probably going to be your go-to cause it does cover, it does cover a lot of ground, right? Like you get balance in there, you get a little bit of cognitive, you get a little bit of, um, you know, memory stuff. Um, you know, the, the issue with it, though, is, and this is what I ran into, too, and this is kind of what made me think, uh, and this is during my residency. So we used to cover um, Taekwondo events, and so we were kind of ringside at all these Taekwondo tournaments because our, our head, you know, uh, guy, our head tutor was a was like a six-degree black belt in Taekwondo. So we got dragged around, you know, all over to a, a different Taekwondo tournament every weekend. And so we'd have all the sports residents that were, you know, sideline ringside at, at all these Taekwondo events. And so, you know, inevitably you got 15 rings going and kids are getting kicked in the head left, right, and center and complaining of headaches and dizziness and you get called over by the ref. And so you have to go in, you have to make kind of a, you know, quick decision whether or not to pull the kid out. If there's any suspicion, you'd pull them out. But then you'd go and sit down and you'd run through a scat. Right. So symptom score, whatever. Then you give them a you know list of words to remember, you know, elbow, apple, carpet, saddle, bubble. Everyone knows it, uh, <laughs> you know, and then, and then whatever. And so and then you'd end up at the back, you know, OK, well, total score is X and um, the kid scored a 83 out of 100. What is that? What does that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? Uh, did he fail? Did he pass? Is he concussed? Is he not concussed? What does it tell you? Hmm. What does it tell you? Unless you knew what that kid did on a good day, where do you, what does that tell you? Like it doesn't really tell you anything. So I think that I think that the scat is is good for at least establishing that you've done something, and it may help you to kind of pick up red flags. Um, I mean, I think that as as an actual objective tool, unless you know what they're like on a day to day. Um, you know, like having that preseason, having that baseline on them, um, it, it's, it doesn't give you as much information as, as, as you'd probably like. So it's almost as okay. So it's almost as better to, as a comparison tool than it is like an upfront, just like, I'm going to run this on you right now. Kind yeah, of thing. I think, I think because at the end of it, you're mm-hmm. still going to shake, you're still going to scratch your head, right? You're going to run them through a scat and go, yeah, I'm going to mm-hmm. run through a scat. And at, at the end of it, when it's all said and done, you're still going to go, I still don't know if he's concussed or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not gonna, it's not gonna like <laughs> seal the deal and tell you whether or not they are, uh, unless you have, unless you have the two. You have the pre and the post, and you can go well over here. This is what they usually do, and here's where they're at now. I mean, there's massive discrepancy here. That's really what you're what mm-hmm. you're looking at. I think the SCAT tool is really good because what it does is it gives you, it it walks you through 
you know, things you should be looking for and ultimately probably helps you to pick up some of the red flags you may otherwise miss if you weren't to do something that was a standardized approach. That I think is yeah. that I think is yeah. probably the best the best thing about it because it takes you through you know um, a Glasgow Coma scale. It takes you through you know a little bit of coordination where it's a, you know the finger to nose test. I mean, what does that tell you? Well, really, what you're looking for there is you're looking for in coordination. You know, how can they do it? Can they not do it? Does this per, is this person displaying signs of kind of cere- you know cerebellar issues that you know warrant a quick trip to the ER? Right. Or can they kind of hang out on the sidelines for now? You know, so I think that that's probably the value of the scat, um, whether or not it becomes an objective tool, you know, unless you have that preseason measure and you kind of know where that athlete would normally score. I mean, it's uh, it's it's not necessarily going to do you much. And this goes for everything. It's not just it's not just scat. Mm -hmm. It's everything. It's it's um, it's um, like King Devic, for example. King Devic is is. Um, some people say Devic, King Devic sometimes, but King Devic is, um, is a rapid number naming test. And so there's, they used to have it in booklets and now it's on an iPad. And what it is, is you kind of just, you name off these numbers and they're, they're on the screen in in weird, you know, places. And so it kind of screws with your eyes a little bit. So it sees the test is designed to see how fast your eyes can move and how fast they can pick that information up off the page or the screen. Um, and it puts them in weird areas so that it, it messes with your ocular motion. It's to pick up, you know, saccadic dysfunction is actually developed for, um, testing dyslexics. And, um, so they have a lot of normative data, but the normative range is so wide. And whenever they do a study, and there's a study that was actually just done recently, they said, um, you know, and because the norms were so wide, you know, it, it, it's useless to do unless you have a baseline. Right. So it, it's, it's like this for everything. And I think that's where, that's where we need to take a good stance and go, okay, we need some objectivity here. Yeah. That kind of goes back to what you were yeah. saying uh, earlier about how like you, you establish that baseline, get all that uh, objectivity information mm-hmm. so you can actually really determine yeah. <laughs> if the person's going to cost them and where they are. And I think, and I think too, I think, uh, I, I think that the big thing, you know, with, you know, baseline or not baseline, you don't necessarily need it to make your diagnosis because really the, the diagnosis is a clinical one. If the person has a mechanism of injury, meaning you've seen some sort of acceleration, whether they were hit in the head or hit in the body or whatever, but there's some sort of mechanism, and th- then they display symptoms shortly thereafter. Headaches, dizziness, mm. nauseousness, you know, and the, and the actual diagnostic criteria right now for concussion is you only need one. There's 22 kind of main symptoms, and if you look at the SCAT, you'll see them there. That's another thing. The SCAT can remind you of those symptoms. There's 22 main symptoms. If they ha- got hit and they display one, even just one of those symptoms, then technically they fall into the diagnostic criteria of concussion. So you don't necessarily need the baseline in order to do the sideline assessment in order to make sure, you know, prove that they have a concussion. Um, what I find the most effective about having a baseline is using it at the back end right? Okay. They've recovered. They're asymptomatic. They've done, you know, we've put them on the treadmill. They've passed. We've put them through, you know, practices. We've run them through the Blackhawks test and all this stuff. And they've been asymptomatic throughout asymptomatic with school. All right. Final check, balance, force plates, reaction time, memory, concentration, visual tracking, uh, neurocognitive function. Are there any things we're missing just from talking to you? (laughs) And if so, then, then we know to, then then we can hold you back, and it's actually you know it's a nice little excuse to hold us back, because if you just look at it and you tell the kid, well, I don't think you're ready yet. Well, why? 
why they're asymptomatic they've passed all the other stuff like they've gone to practice like why are you holding them back this the this is just a final kind of you know another hoop to jump through that allows us as a practitioner to not have to argue you know with a mom or dad or a kid and say you know mm-hmm. look it's not me like you, you you're showing balance impairment and and your memory's still off right so that that's where it kind of helps you to on 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 that clinical side to make that decision that's great <laughs> Man, dude, this is like one of the most informative hours that I've ever had in my entire life. And it's funny too because I, you know, Mike, how many times have you, even you, Dr. Marshall, how many times have you been working with like a high school or middle school kid and you're doing like the scat or like a memory thing and you're just going, I don't even know if they could have done this like a week ago. Can they actually do the alphabet backwards? Like I can't even do that. Yeah. Well, listen, listen to this one. So I had a kid, um, this is a few years ago now, and this kid, young kid, uh, probably, I don't know, maybe nine, let's say he's nine, and a uh, hockey player, um, and he went to uh, like a, a concussion program that was run by, uh, by a hospital. Uh, you know, physicians in there, they got, you know, neurologists and all these, you know, high profile type uh, health professionals. And, and what they were doing every time they saw him is they'd run him through a scat. And if he didn't pass the scat and what they, they needed, he needed to get perfect. A hundred percent. You're talking a, a nine year old kid that he couldn't, he couldn't do, he couldn't recite six digits backwards. Right. And they're going, no, nope, not ready yet. So I'm, what? yeah. And so this kid missed a year of hockey, um, you know, sitting out, missing, playing with his friends because they were trying to make sure that he could pass the test with hundred percent accuracy. And that's not real life. Like I can't even do that. And this kid's nine years old. turns out not only that, the kid has a learning disability for numbers. So, oh, right. So like, this was absolutely ridiculous. Um, and this is this is what's happening, or like around the world, man. This is what's happening is 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 people are you know treating concussions and not really, not really, you know. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the whole management thing that we've been echoing throughout this whole podcast. Yeah, yeah. How much yeah. of it is the way that we're doing things? Exactly, exactly. That's and that's the thing that really gets me is is a from a symptom standpoint how much is it the way that we're doing things but also from a um from a from a chronic traumatic encephalopathy you know standpoint how much is it the way that we're doing things how much is it if we were to take these players out and i think that you know the nfl would be in trouble if we had to sit players for a month each time they had a concussion but what would happen what would be the net result of that would we see the amount of you know issues would we see the amount of mental health issues would we see the amount of um, cognitive impairment, where we see all that. Or, like any injury, like, let's take ankle sprains, right? You sprain your ankle uh, and you don't properly rehab it. What's going to happen? Well, your proprioceptive mechanisms are all screwed up and you're, likely, you're more likely to sprain it again, right? So if you don't rehab it properly, you're more likely to get another sprain, okay? Now, get a couple sprains on your belt, guess what? You're more likely to get up and have, have osteoarthritis in that ankle, Right? Now let's turn around and apply that to the brain, right? You get a concussion, don't take care of it, get another one more easily because you haven't taken care of it, you haven't recovered properly. Then you get another one, then you get another one, then you get another one. Now you got the generation. I don't know. Maybe. 
This is all. This is all theoretical, by the way. <laughs> this is just using. <laughs> this is using. I don't want to. You know, it, this is just using kind of what we do know and and asking questions. Yeah. And so, how much? Divide. Like, how much about CTE do we actually know? Is it? I know you. You kind of alluded to it earlier, but do you want to go down the CTE rabbit hole right now? Yeah, we can. Um, um, people are still listening to us, um, but yeah, like so. So so <laughs> the the whole thing with CTE is that the research on it is is not really that good. So we don't really know a lot. What CTE is is classified as as what's called a tauopathy. So it means that there's hyperphosphorylated tau protein um, that that gets deposited in the brain. Uh, Alzheimer's is also a tauopathy. So it's the same kind of classification of um, disease. And what tau is and where it comes from, and this might make a little bit more sense, but it's actually a supporting, it's a protein that supports, like if you think about uh, neuroanatomy, and I don't know... um, um, you know how in depth the you know your your knowledge is on on that. But if you if you get right in kind of microscopically on a neuron, you have these neurofilaments and these microtubules that run along an axon, and that's what helps with the transport of nutrients throughout the throughout the axon. But tau protein it holds those in place, so it's kind of a supporting structure for the microtubules. And so when you have uh, damage, and one of the theories behind concussion is that stretching and shearing can actually damage some of those microtubules and neurofilaments inside the neuron, kind of that microstructural level. But then potentially you get maybe a release of that protein structure that was holding that stuff in place. And also inflammation that comes in after you know an injury or repeated injuries could you know, potentially damage some of the neurons and release some of that tau. And anyway, it gets hyperphosphorylated through whatever mechanisms, and it gets deposited. And it ends up with these what's called neurofibrillary tangles, which are kind of these um, tau protein, um, hyperphosphorylated tau protein deposits and that's and that's essentially what what they find in these brains and we don't really know why we don't really know i mean the theory obviously is that yes the mechanism of injury the stretching and the shearing kind of does it uh there's also a theory that's that suggests that maybe because when you get injured because a lot of this tau protein is found in certain areas like remember how i said the white matter and gray matter with different densities yeah. Well, a lot of the um, a lot of the tau protein is found kind of right at the junction between those, right? So the theory is, well, that's where the most stress is occurring, and that makes sense of where that protein is found. Alzheimer's is more widely distributed, so they find tau protein, but it's more kind of just global all over the place. Um, and and chronic traumatic encephalopathy is is the tau protein is located kind of more at the junctions between, you know, the layers of tissue. Um, and it's also found around blood vessels, and so because that's another area where there could be stretching and shearing, and 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 especially if there's if there's shearing or damage to the blood-brain barrier, you're going to get inflammation coming into you know into the brain, but you're also going to get pathogens um, that may seep through the blood-brain barrier and may get attacked and may create a bit of an autoimmune response. So because your your central nervous system has a completely separate immune system from your systemic system. Things in your CNS or that things from your body that make it into the CNS are seen as foreign, right? Your CNS doesn't recognize it as being, you know, an entity of your own body because it's not supposed to be there, right? So damage mm-hmm. to the blood-brain barrier, if something gets in there that's not supposed to be there, your immune system can attack it but also potentially damage some of the t- tissue around it. So they tend to find this tau around blood vessels and whether or not that's due to the injury taking place at that junction, whether or not that's due to inflammation happening in that area, whether or not that's due to, um, you know, let's call it foreign bodies sneaking through and creating an immune response in that area, um, we don't really we don't really know. 
But anyway, well, all we have right now is we have a bunch of brains from former players that have, that have passed away that have reported cognitive problems in life. And the thing is, not all of them have. And this is where things get really confusing. So you've had people that have played NFL football or whatever that have donated their brains and said, I've been fine. I haven't had any cognitive problems. I had any memory impairments. Donate my brain as a control. And they turn out they have it too. Okay, well, why, why do some people have symptoms and some people don't? Right? Why do, why do people that have end-stage CTE um, sometimes have less symptoms, hypothetically, than people that have early-stage CTE? Right? You have kids that are 17, 18 years old that have depression and commit suicide, and they find CTE in the brain, and they automatically assume that it was the CTE that did it. Right? Oh, it's C- CTE. But you don't realize that, that suicide and mental health is such a complex issue. Right, yeah. just because the kid had some of these tau protein deposits, are that is that what made it happen? Because you have people that are a little bit older that have way more, and they never committed suicide, right? So, hmm. so is it really the disorder itself that's that's causing this? You know what I mean? So you get into the question because oftentimes, and the big criticism of CTE is that the pathology that they find post mortem doesn't fit all the time with the symptoms that people experience in life. Because you also have the flip side, people who are depressed and anxious, uh, angry, explosive, uh, can't, uh, they, they, they have poor memory. They have all these same symptoms that somebody with CTE would have, and they assume that they have it. So they commit suicide, donate their brain. It turns out they have no plaques, no tangles, nothing, right? What? And so now what are we doing to professional athletes by propagating this mass hysteria when we actually know nothing about it. Like all we have right now is a case series, right? If you were to look at your evidence pyramid, um, you know, what are the levels of evidence and what is, you know, what constitutes good scientific evidence? Case series is at the bottom of that, right? That is at the very, oh, Siri's trying to talk to me. Because <laughs> I said case series, that's why I said case series and it just prompted her. But um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually at the bottom of that, of that evidence pyramid. So, so the level of evidence that we have is actually extremely low. Um, but it's, it's, it's just mass hysteria over this. Um, but I mean, like I said, mental health is so complex, right? And if you think about all the other things that are going on, if you look at just depression, mental health, things like that, those tend to happen at big life changing moments and actually retirement just in the general population is one of the most depressing times in people's lives because things change. Right? They were a member of the workforce. They're now you know, 65, and all of a sudden they feel like they're no longer needed. Right? Okay, I'm out. I'm old. I'm you know, retiring. And people experience this differently. Right? Some people experience it like you know, I'm too old, and I, this is the next stage of my life, and, and um, they get really down on it. Some people you know, see it as like, oh, great. I can't wait to you know, spend more time with my family and my kids and my grandkids and things like that. But it just depends on how you perceive it. Now, let's take that same thing when you're retired. And let's put that into, you're now 28. And I don't know how old you guys are, but let's say you guys are 28. Mike's 28. Right there. So right now, you're retired right now, right? Hmm. Now, and, and that might sound sweet, <laughs> you know, but, but, but now but think about it from the mind of a professional athlete, right? Like you were a hero in high school. You're a hero in college. You're a hero in the NFL. And, you, you know, money, fame, cars, everything you ever wanted. And now you're... 28, you don't really have anything to do. Maybe the money's gone. Maybe the cars are gone, right? What am I going to do for the rest of my life? What am I, you know, and then that, think about how crazy of a shift that is. You're, you're up here now. You're, you're nobody. You're, 
you're a has-been, you're a was, and now what? Right? So is that how much of that creates the same symptoms that we are associating with CTE? <laughs> so there's another question for you. Now let's get into tau in general. There are, I think, 20, 20 or so different tauopathies. And there's actually two distinct conditions, um, and I can't remember the names of it right now, but there was a paper that just came out of this from uh, Grant, Grant Iverson, who's a big concussion name. There's a paper on this. There's actually two distinct neuropathological entities that have the exact same findings as CTE, and they don't, they're not due to head trauma at all. They're just due to aging. So how many of these people have that? That's a question. Nothing to do with head trauma. Um, also, how much of this is just normal life? Maybe this is just like a variation of a neurodegenerative condition that we've never seen before and we're just starting to see it. But the only brains we're looking at are NFL players. How much of the general population has this? There was a guy who, who um, there was just a study that it was just a case, case report of a guy who died here in Toronto. Um, and um, he's, I think he's like 50 years old or so. No history of head trauma, never played contact sports in his life. Neuropathological examination shows he had CTE. Explain that. What? Yep. Yep. So that's the thing. We don't even know what this is. We have no idea what this is. And here's, here's, here's another one for you. Tau protein deposits have been associated with uh, certain things, and one of those being opiate medications. Opiates are known to be correlated with tau protein deposits in the brain. So painkillers, heavy-dose painkillers. Hmm. 77% of former NFL players admit to using a high amount of opioids both during and after they played. Wow. How, I, so uh, it, I can confirm this, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Is this, is this concussion? Is this a neurodegenerative disease related to concussion? Is this um, an issue that's, you know, with the opioid crisis happening right now? How many of, how many of these... Um, and that'd be an interesting study, actually. You take a lot because there's a lot of opioid deaths happening right now in the U.S. Um, and and you can you can take a look at that maybe and see if there's anything there. But you know what I mean? Like I think there's a, there's a ton of unanswered questions. I think that there the media blitz on this and the attention that's been given to it. Um, and I read a stat the other day. There was there's been ten times more news stories published about CTE than there has been confirmed cases. What? Oh my god. <laughs> let that let that let that sink in on you. There's been ten times more like national news stories published on CTE than there has been people with confirmed cases. Oh my gosh. Yep. <laughs> Wild stuff, eh? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because I, I, I just put a I posted like an Instagram thing that we were we were doing something with you. And um, Zach Gabor, who's simple strength physio on Instagram, um, yeah. he just commented that he had, he had taken your course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he's, um, in he said, he's in Boston. Yeah, yeah. He said it was awesome. But we're actually we're we're doing a podcast with him tomorrow. Oh, really? <laughs> and it's interesting because a lot of the stuff that he talks about right now, as far as like biopsychosocial approach to like patient management. Yeah. He's all about like you know kind of dispelling myths and nocebos and trying to combat yeah. these common like thought viruses that we have in, you know, within the medical world of, of people that just have, you know, these widespread misconceptions about injuries and health and all this. And here we are talking about concussions and CTE and 
we, we almost have like, you know, this nocebo type thing, this thought virus going on because we don't fully understand it. And yet all we do is talk about how bad it is. Yep. I know. And, and think about being in my shoes and just seeing this happen day in and day out. Like I watched the movie concussion and just yelled at my TV for an hour and a half. <laughs> like it was, it was wild. Like, you know, just, just knowing that. And, and the thing is like this, they'd pull out a paper and I'd be like, Oh, I know that paper. And they would completely misquote what the paper said <sighs> in the movie. And you're just like, Oh my God, like this is just Hollywood garbage. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's it's wild and unfortunately and this is the this is the sad thing right as i work with some professional athletes and and you know even non-professional athletes just athletes played high school i had a, I had a girl in the other day uh played a bunch of hockey had two or three concussions and uh you know she had a full ride scholarship in the u.s at one point and you know now she's she's up here and um she came in and she, the, one of the first questions she asked she goes i'm gonna have cte aren't i mm. right so now like you're just going okay Let's, but this is what's happening to these types of patients, right? So now if you can think about how powerful your mind is, right, and, and you think about, you know, let's say you're, you're a regular person and you, you know, miss, and this is an example I use all the time, you misplace your cell phone, right? Well, oh, where did I put my cell phone? Oh, man, I just, you know, and you look for it. And that's about as far as it goes, right? You look for it and you're like, I'm an idiot. Where the hell did I put that thing? Can somebody call me, you know? Now put yourself in the shoes of a concussion patient or let's say you're a retired football player. You lose your cell phone. You start to think, man, am I losing my mind? Where did I put that? I can't remember. I can't remember. Now it's a memory impairment, right? Not just an everyday lapse in what happens with people, you know, like you just do things, you know, like I, I put the milk in the cupboard the other day. <laughs> like, you know, this is stuff that happens to people in their lives now. But if you're going to now, let's say you're a former professional athlete or let's say you're a current professional athlete and that happens. You had a couple concussions. What do you What do you think? Oh my God! It's my CTE. Right, right, right. Now, how do you separate your CTE from your normal life? How do you separate that a momentary lapse and whatever from like, a, oh my God, I have a chronic, you know, progressive neurodegenerative condition that's that's gonna, you know, ruin my life and my family. And especially the symptoms are like, you know, aggression, physical, domestic abuse. You know, now you got wife and kids, you start worrying about, am I going to start harming them? You know, like, oh man, just, just the thoughts that must happen. Um, and that's it. Like I said, we know nothing about this. So hmm. it's, it's, it's sad. It's, it's sad. It's unfortunate. Right. So again, dispelling the myths, could this be possible? Yes. Is it, is it even plausible? Yes. It's plausible that multiple concussions may lead to a neurodegenerative condition. Yes, absolutely. Now, is it because the concussions are happening or is it because they're happening too close together? That's another question. Mm-hmm. But could this also be due to normal life? Could this be due to the foods we're eating? Could this be due to um, uh, chronic pro- – like could this be due to processed food? Throw that out there. Mm-hmm. Could this be due to – we don't have enough controlled brains. We're not looking to see how prevalent this condition is in the normal population. And, and you can see why, Right. Are you going to donate your brain? Am I going to donate my brain? Probably not. Like, I didn't even really think about it. And most general people don't. Well, I've never had concussions. I don't have to donate my brain. <laughs> but the thing is, you need, you need that control. You need to see how prevalent the condition is, you know, in, in, in the general population. I think, we're, I think people are starting to realize that because I think there's a lot of scrutiny about the CTE research that's out there. And I think definitely we need to look at it. Like, I think for sure. 
but I don't think we need to be starting to, you know, change what we do. Like, I don't think the evidence is, is compelling enough to say that our kids shouldn't play sports, right? I think the benefits of, of playing football and hockey probably far outweigh the consequences. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's in parents' minds now. Like, and it's crazy. And, you, and, and let's think about how this – I run a concussion company. And this is me saying this, right? Shouldn't I be capitalizing on the fear of like what's going on and trying to, oh yeah, get people in for whatever? And <laughs> no, like that's the thing. Like that's that's not what this is about. Like this is about actually helping people, <laughs> right? Like we can we can do all that. Like let's let's help people. That's that's the whole thing here. Let's give them the right information. Let's teach them why. Let's teach them how. Um, let's teach them that we don't know, you know, some things, but let's not sound the alarm bells, right? Mm-hmm. Information is power, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. It, 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 it's it's funny you say that because I think we this was something that Greg Todd said on one of his podcasts that I was listening to, and it was the whole notion that like in in our profession in the world of rehab, we're basically capitalizing on people's demise. Yeah. So you know if we want to be a good businessman the whole point of it is to keep people sucked into our system and make sure they keep coming back and buying our products and getting rehab and then almost using some of these things to create these fear mongering type thing to be successful as a, as a business person. Mm-hmm. But if we want to be successful as a clinician, we have to do the opposite. We have to dispel those myths and empower people and, and help them, you know, achieve the, their goals and their rehab as much as they can on their own so that they can be successful and they can be, you know, we can help people. Mm-hmm. It's, just a, it's just an interesting position to be in. Yeah, but I think, I think you can do both at the same time, right? And I think that's, that's the whole beauty of this, this thing, right? Like you can uh, – sorry, I thought my computer just died. I almost had a panic attack there. <laughs> um, you can um, – and this is – I've always approached practice in this way is I, get, I try to get people better as fast as I can. Right? I want them out the door in like two seconds. And I love it when people come in and go, oh, I've been everywhere. I've seen everyone and no one can fix it. And I love it because I'm like, I'm going to get this person out the door as quickly as possible. Because you know why? Because they go and tell their friends and they hand out your cards and they do all that. So it's funny that people have that, you know, and certain people do. They have that mentality of I need to keep this person coming back. Right? I need to see this person three times a week for the next six months or whatever. And they put them on these long treatment plans for no apparent reason. My goal is... I'm going to get you better in two, in one. I'm going, to, I'm going to try and figure out what this is. And because what happens there, if my goal is to get you out, then it, it, almost, it almost creates the drive to be like, well, I want to come back. And it's, it's a really strange thing. But you get those referrals to people come in, and if you're honest and you deliver value, you will always be successful. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. And that, even with this program, right, it's like, I could go and fear monger and try to drum up business. And all. No, why don't I just provide value, right? If you provide enough value to enough people, you're going to be successful. That's just how it is. Like if I help people, they'll tell other people. And if I teach these clinicians how to do this, they'll get people better and people will recommend our services and it'll be this huge thing and we'll be helping people and we'll be successful and we'll have done a good thing, right? Like you can, you can, there's, there's ways to do both, right? I love that. I love. I love that quote that you just said. If you're honest and you deliver value, you will be successful. <laughs> I don't even remember what I said. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna have to like. Comb, we're gonna have to like comb through here and just pull out like these badass quotes that you keep mm-hmm. spouting. Mike's been writing a couple of them down. What's the one? The 
The homework one? Yeah, I'm not special. I just did my homework. Like that too. <laughs> <laughs> You're dropping knowledge bombs left and right. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like a that's like a, a little like a tombstone <laughs> quote. I'm not special. I just did my homework. <laughs> Mike, is that yeah. gonna be one of our uh, our movement docs t-shirt <laughs> ideas? Which is a little, little tombstone with like you know Dr. Marshall's name on it, and just says, "I'm not special. I just did my homework." <laughs> oh my gosh, this is great. Damn. Let's talk. Let, let's let, let's let's talk rehab. I think that's the only thing we haven't covered. Let's freaking do it. Let's do it. Unless you guys got to get no. out of here. No, man. We we we're good. <laughs> I I love I love everything that's happening right now. I am glued to my seat. <laughs> All right, good. Um, yeah, rehab. So, I mean, and here's the thing. This is where this is where I think that you know, uh, and I think the listeners out there that are going to follow you know your podcast are going to be in this realm. It it's really like Allied Health, PT, AT, DC. Everything right now, all the evidence we have on the most effective treatments for concussion falls right within our domain. And, it, and it's crazy because not a lot of PTs even know that there's treatment for concussion and even less know that the treatment is them. They are the treatment. And it's, it's things like if you look at the evidence behind um, medication, they even said it in, in, in the most recent Berlin consensus that, that medication, um, there's no solid evidence uh, for any type of pharmacological therapies. Um, so, all right, so what's the treatment, right? Well, it's not rest anymore. Well, here's the most evidence-based therapies. Exercise in a substantive threshold level. Well, who has treadmills in their in the facilities? How many, you know, how many primary care physicians are putting people on treadmills? Right? They don't have they don't have time to do that. So who's doing it? Well, maybe a kin, but most of the time it's gonna be your PTAT, your rehab clinic, right? Do they know how to do it? I don't know. Right? It, are they are they taught it and are they training it? I don't know. That's kind of where, where we come in. Um, vestibular rehab. Right, vestibular rehab is is great, but and a lot of people take these vestibular courses, and it's funny too because we talk to a lot of a, a, a lot of PTs. We go to the you know conferences and stuff, and we just ask them, you know, what are you doing for concussion management? And they'll say, oh, I've I've, I've taken vestibular training, I'm good. Oh, hmm. okay. <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, the evidence comes out. Uh, there was actually a study that just came out recently. Exactly zero percent of people with post concussion, chronic concussion symptoms, had a vestibular problem alone. Hmm. Right, one hundred percent had a visual problem of some kind, whether it's saccadic dysfunction, smooth pursuits, convergence insufficiency, whatever you name it. One hundred percent of them had some sort of visual dysfunction. Forty uh, percent of them had some sort of peripheral vestibular issue along with the visual function. Eighty percent of them were cervical spine related. Hmm. Okay, um, and and there you go. So. All of these elements are, are kind of what goes into it. And now how do you how do you kind of you know work between them all? And that's and that's really the most the most challenging but also the most interesting part um, about the whole thing. But it's funny because a lot of a lot of therapists don't realize that like this is you, man. Like you if you are not treating concussions right now at your clinic, you are missing out on a huge opportunity to grow your practice. To, to grow it, like, you know, well, A, I mean, we can talk business and financially. Like, I mean, it's a great opportunity to grow it financially. But just think about the amount of people. Like, my patient base is probably 95% concussion. After that, it's the mothers 
the fathers, the brothers, the sisters, the whoever else, because they came in to see me for a concussion injury for their son or daughter because somebody you know, knew me, referred them in, whatever. And now I'm treating the whole family because at the time they say, do you know, do, do you know anything <laughs> about knees? And as you're, as you're working with their kid, you go, yeah, for sure. Oh, because like, this my right, right knee's been killing me. You're like, all right, we'll just book an appointment. And there you go. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's such a way to ingrain yourself into, you know, kind of a, kind of a network community within. And like a lot of, a lot of uh, therapists don't realize that like concussion treatment, like you are the concussion treatment. As long as you know what to do and you can do it well, like you're going to have massive success in treating concussion patients. And the best thing about concussion is that patients show up, you know, three years out being like, I, I've been everywhere. I've done everything. I can't nobody's ever put them on a treadmill. Nobody's ever run them through a Buffalo. Nobody's ever put them through, you know, any of the stuff that, that we do to them. And they're like, Whoa, what's going on here? And next thing you know, you know, six weeks later, they're hundred percent better back to work, you know, everything. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible feeling to be able to, to do that. Right. It's because you're managing um, them appropriately, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's all evidence-based. Like there's evidence to support it. The problem is that you have to get so deep to put it all together that, that, not many people go to the level. I mean, there's mm. great programs everywhere, right? But not a lot of people put put that all together. So the average therapist is um, is you know doing their vestibular therapy and wondering why the patient's not getting better. Yeah. Well, I think that's I think that's kind of like an awesome thing that, that your company is able to do and provide too. Because you talked about the the summaries and everything else. Like you you have your educational piece, and then you know like as new information gets compiled, you guys are putting in the work and synthesizing this information for people to, to, to read and like, and figure out. So they're staying on top of everything that's going on and ways to manage. So I think that's cool. You provided a, a hole there or you filled a hole there. Adding value, my friend, <laughs> adding value. Like I said, so yeah, we do the dirty work. We do the homework, right. But it's all, I mean, it helps me too. Cause I, I, you know, I get to come on here and talk to you guys and sound really smart. Um, but, 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 but it's wild when you start thinking, I mean, I remember when I did, I did my course. So we were doing the course, we were kind of moving around Canada a little bit. And here's just a little bit of a story. Uh, and I went to Ottawa and I saw these, these two girls that were actually at one of our first courses, one of our first, I think they were probably our sixth or seventh clinic that ever came on. And so they took the first course and then we went back, I think a year or two later to Ottawa and they, they asked if they could come in and do like a research. They wanted to like take it again. Um, and we were going around the room kind of introducing everyone who was there. I think there was maybe like 20, 30 people there at the time and going around just, you know, what's your experience in this area? You know, how, how many concussions do you treat? You know, you've never seen these patients, you know, um, what's your experience? You work with athletes or what's your patient demographic, whatever. And we got around to like those, those two girls and they were like, they were like, this has changed like our practice completely. Like the amount of people that we've helped, like she, and she started telling me about patients that she's like, she, she started naming off patients. Like I had a girl come in with her mom and blah, blah, blah. And like, um, you know, all this stuff, all these stories. And I'm sitting at the front going like, holy crap, like people I've never met just by educating and empowering other people are being helped. Like that is crazy, you know. That that was like that like gave me the motivation to be like, all right, we gotta help more people. There's way way too many people out there suffering with these chronic symptoms that just need the right rehab approach. And if we can just train enough people to be able to do it, um, you know, we can put all this behind us. Yeah, you know, it's that's that's an awesome story because like you know you talk about empowering people and and, and giving people the tools that they need, but that story and your own reflection kind of empowered you too in a way. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like it gives you, 
it gives, you know, you get motivated by other, by others, you know, that's, I think that's a self-fulfilling thing, you know, like you do good work, it makes you feel good and you end up going out and it's, it's selfish in a way to give, <laughs> you, know what I mean? like, you know what I mean? In, in, in a way, like it, it is like, it's, you're, you're doing it because you feel good by doing, I don't know. It's weird. Anyway, I think we're getting a little off topic, but yeah, I get, I get you. <laughs> You get you get out what you get back what you put out into the universe, right? So it's like you put out yeah. all this good energy and it comes back to you in waves. So that's that's cool. What's the Paul McCartney quote? The love you make is equal to the love you take, or something like that. I don't know if that's exactly appropriate, but it, I just thought of it, so I wanted to say something. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I not think, familiar. I think, I think it's, it's something in a like song. That. I don't know. Beatles. All I, all I could think of, you said Paul McCartney. I thought Rolling Stones, and immediately went, "You can't always get what you want." But <laughs> I'm way off. Same era, different band. It's okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's great. I love it. So, so for anybody that's listening, uh, you know, like ATs, PTs, or any other like healthcare professional, um, you know. What you said is that, you know, we, we have similar tools with the appropriate, you know, education and ways to kind of manage it. Uh, you know, we have the right tool set to, to help a lot of people with concussions. Is that, yeah, is that right? I think, I think that's really the take home. And, um, and, you know, it's funny, too, because, you know, we're teaching we're teaching people how to manage concussion injuries. And one of the criticisms we get is, um, you know, especially here in in in, in Canada will have, you know, a few doctors and neurosurgeons being like, well, you can't be treating concussions. You've just taken, you know, a 30 hour, 35 hour course. And it's, it's going, well, look, we're not, we're not teaching them, you know, a lot of like new information. We're just teaching them how to apply a lot of the skills they already have. Right. Like a lot of this stuff is, and I, I don't, I, I mean, that's too general because there's a lot of stuff that, um, it wouldn't be covered in most in most programs that gets a little bit specific for concussion. But a lot of the stuff is, you know, it's it's manual therapy. It's 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 soft tissue therapies for for neck related dysfunctions. It's um, and, and then it's, but it goes in a little deeper on how to find those dysfunctions and where are they located and what what specific and a lot of people don't know like the integration of the cervical spine with with eye motion and how when your eyes turn in different directions it actually engages muscles in your cervical spine. So somebody having you know a smooth pursuit issue where their eyes are kind of skipping all over the place when they're trying to follow a target or when they're trying to read a book may not have a visual problem. They may have a vestibular problem. And how do we separate that out? Well, those type of assessment techniques, I mean, we can train you, but the rehabilitation for that is all within your skill set to be able to do. Hmm. It's just how do you apply it? How do you do it? Right. And that's, that's really what we're kind of getting into and teaching that. So it's, um, it, it is a lot of, the, and this is the thing that's like, hey, you you guys have to know this. <laughs> you guys have to know this because you're the, who, no one else is going to do it. Like the mm-hmm. physicians not going to do that. They're not going to be you know doing that type of stuff. They're not going to get that crazy with you know visual and vestibular integration and stuff like that. And there's and there's there's a lot of great therapists out there that you know let's say they have their vestibular training and that's great. But it, it's if it's like I said, if it's a C spine problem and you're mashing this person with vestibular forever, all they're going to do is feel like crap, and you're not actually you know, progressing them. They're not getting to that next level. And if you're wondering why it's because you're missing something. Hmm. Mike, I, I don't know if you heard, but he just said the next level. <laughs> he did. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really bad inside joke. We had one of our previous uh, guests was Dr. Mike Wareham, um, who's at a clinic up in uh, Boston. Is that right? Uh, New, New Jersey. New Jersey. Jersey. Uh, yes. Called next level PT. 
And so somehow in the course of our podcast, pretty much at some point in every podcast, I usually say something to the effect of we're taking it to the next level um, as kind of like a throwback reference. And so you just, you went ahead and did that for me. So I I just want to say thank you. Leveling up, leveling up. That's perfect. Oh man. So I got one, one question because you were mentioning all sorts of different stuff about like rehab. Um, and I kind of, it probably circles back a little bit to more like concussion diagnoses and whatnot. But one of the things that we were taught in school was like that there are different trajectories for concussion. Is that something that holds up to the research that's out there? Um, Do you mean, you mean trajectories like, um, like classification? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Like, what do you like? Maybe elaborate like, on that a bit. So. Like, uh, either vestibular or like the migraine, C spine, that type of thing. Yeah. So there's, and, and it's not it's not that clean. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's not that it's not that clean. But but yeah, in in a way, there it is like that. But the, here's here's kind of my explanation on post concussion syndrome. Post-concussion syndrome in a definition, and this is mostly where rehab comes into the mix, but post-concussion syndrome by definition, uh, according to the ICD-10 criteria, is having persistent symptoms lasting longer than a four-week period after the injury happened, right? Now, what did I say the metabolic recovery for concussion was? 22 to 30 days, right? There's mm-hmm. your four-week period. So beyond that four-week period, we don't really have a, little, a lot of good explanation for why persistent symptoms happen, right? In the acute stages, in that first 30 days, you could attribute it to metabolic, but that's a whole other story. I mean, that's going, I think, even um, uh, too deep for me to even explain verbally without having slides to go off of. But once you hit that, that, that four-week period, you're classified as post-concussion syndrome. Now, there's, as far as we know and in everything that I've put together, there's five main causes of post-concussion syndrome. And there's a few others that are kind of more early stage that we don't really know a lot about. Like, for example, um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to the end. I'll do the other ones first. So here's the meat and potatoes. Number one is blood flow. Physiologic mechanisms, meaning an underlying brain or physiologic reason for having persistent symptoms. The big one being blood flow. Well, the first thing we do with people when they come in with persistent symptoms is we put them through the to the treadmill test and try to find out is this a cause or not, right? And so depending on how they do on that, that'll kind of frame out what we do as a rehab strategy. Number two is metabolic or inflammatory. So metabolic meaning like, you know, maybe their ATP levels are still low for whatever reason. That's really not a, a thing for the most part, but maybe it is. Uh, in which case, maybe we can give them dietary supplementation. You know, for example, creatine. Creatine is a is 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 a way to get ATP, right? So, if they're talking ATP deficit, what if we hyperload them with creatine? That's another possibility, right? Not a lot of research. There's a few animal studies that are getting into human trials now, uh, but it's interesting. Uh, inf- inflammation is the other part of that, right? So, any type of injury you're going to get, you're going to get inflammation. Inflammation has this tricky little thing that it does that it it brings on more inflammation. So when inflammation goes to an area, it kind of damages some of the healthy tissue, which then sends out more inflammatory markers, which then creates more inflammation rushing to an area and so on and so on. You get this cyclical inflammatory response. Um, and they've noticed, you know, various cognitive impairments in people that have had, you know, injuries to other parts of the bodies, like traumatic injuries that don't even involve the head, but they'll have, you know, cognitive complaints be a little bit foggy. And they're thinking that just overall systemic inflammation impairs cognitive function. So if you have an injury, you know, especially in the brain area or even close to it in the neck, um, 
you know, inflammation may be contributing to some of these symptoms. So maybe we can give you the right diet plan, right? Um, you know, dietary supplementation, uh, anti-inflammatory diet, uh, avoiding, you know, pro-inflammatory foods, um, you know, avoiding processed crap, all that stuff. We have diet plans that we give to our patients right away, day one. Here you go. Here's what you're eating for the next little bit. Uh, here's some supplementations you can take to try and knock down that inflammation. Number three. Uh, visual and or vestibular. And I link them together because they're often paired together. So again, if you're doing just vestibular, you're probably missing some stuff. Um, and this is, you know, kind of the, the, you know, quick kind of quick and dirty, you know, quick vestibular ocular motor screen is the bombs test, which we kind of talked a little bit about. Um, and I think people are somewhat familiar with that, but I won't get into all that. But anyway, it's a series of tests and you just try to determine, you know, where the issues are based on the results of that. Um, number four is, is neck related. So here's, here's a, here's one that'll kind of, you know, twist your mind a little bit. Um, the, the pathophysiology, sorry, the biomechanical studies that have been done on concussion injuries, uh, they'll put accelerometers inside football helmets and, and, you know, keep them in people for a season and they'll start looking at how much, you know, how many impacts they're getting, right? over a certain G threshold, they usually set it to, to go off, you know, whenever the, whenever the accelerometer surpasses 10 Gs of acceleration. And then what they'll do is they'll follow these players for a year, two years, three years with these accelerometers in the helmet, and they'll measure every impact at practice and during games. And what they found from this is that concussion, when a concussion injury happens, they'd come off and they'd, yeah, this is a concussion. What was the acceleration on that particular impact? And they find that the majority of concussions, kind of the, the range of where a concussion happens, right? Because you need enough acceleration to create that stretching of the neurons in order to create that ion exchange. So you, it's not just every concussion, right? Like, I mean, subconcussive impact is a whole other topic that, that I don't think we have time to get into. But um, holy crap, <laughs> <laughs> we've been going at this for a while. Uh, but but um, I just looked at the time. Uh, but... <laughs> But the concussion happens at that, at that 70 to 120 G range, right? So G's being the force of gravity. So just to put that in perspective for people, if, um, uh, if, if, if you're in a car accident, I'll use miles per hour for, for our American friends. Um, you guys got to get in the metric system already. But we'll use miles, miles, miles per hour, okay? So if you, if you are driving a car and you smash into somebody going 30, okay? 30 miles an hour, your airbags will deploy. That's kind of the set point of, of airbag deployment is a change of velocity of about 30 miles an hour. That translates into 60 Gs through the seatbelt. So you're talking about an injury that you have to take 70 to 120 Gs to your head to cause concussion injury. And um, there may be some plus or minus in there, right? So you're talking about a pretty significant impact. And actually, um, these studies found that less than 0.02% of all football impacts resulted in a change of a lot or in an acceleration to that level. Right? So it's not, it's not, a, it's not all football impacts. And they've actually found that 77% of all football impacts were below 30 G's below the threshold range of, of what would be considered you know, concussion territory, which that's good news, right? Unless you want to get into the whole subconcussive thing, but that's, I'll save that for another talk. You guys can have, we can talk about that one forever. Um, anyway, 70 to 120 Gs, okay? Injury to the neck, whiplash injuries, mild cervical strain injuries, happens at 4.5 Gs. So that means that if you're going to take 70 to 120 Gs to your head, you are taking at least 4.5 to your neck. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So every single concussion, 100% of the time, has a whiplash. 
And if you were to take the symptoms of whiplash and the symptoms of concussion and put them side by side, they are identical. Mm. Cognitive impairments, blurred vision, memory lapses, balance impairments, dizziness, name it. It's their headaches, right? And actually, this was my thesis. So I did this with, uh, with the guys in Buffalo. We looked at people coming in with chronic whiplash. We looked at people coming in with chronic concussion. And we had them fill out the same symptom scores. There was absolutely zero difference. We couldn't tell the difference between somebody who had chronic whiplash and somebody who had chronic concussion. So let's look at now the metabolic recovery of concussion. We're looking at that 22 to 30-day timeline. You know, That's just the metabolic piece. You have blood flow and everything else, and that's why you have to kind of rule all that stuff out. If you were now to look at the trajectory or the recovery period for whiplash, you know, three to six months, potentially a year, right? So how many of these post-concussion patients that are walking around with quote-unquote concussion symptoms are actually just dealing with a whiplash that nobody's bothered hmm. to look for. And, that, and a lot of the time, and being in this space, a lot of the time these people have zero neck pain, but that's one of the defining criteria, right? Well, if they have cervicogenic headaches, they must have neck pain. <laughs> nope. Absolutely, absolutely wrong. And it's, it's really funny because you get somebody that comes in that's been dizzy and they've been to you know, vestibular people and they've been to neurology and they've been to this and they've had MRIs and they've had all this stuff. And, and I'll just kind of smile as they tell me the story. And I'll be like, when do you feel dizzy? And they'll give me the specific mechanisms. I'll take them out on the floor. And actually, it's interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to film this actually, I think. Um, but I have these guys come in with like a virtual reality headset that they've developed for looking at uh, saccadic visual motion. And they put people in all these different positions and stuff, and the camera records what their eyes do. So it looks at all these different nystagmus patterns and stuff like that. So they're, they're coming in uh, on, I think, March 2nd into my clinic, and I'm just grabbing a handful of patients. Like I said, I'm going to grab like maybe 10 patients or so, and we're going to do a test. We're going to have them do the test, and it's going to pick up all these dysfunctions. And then I'm going to go and play with their neck and then see what happens because then they're going to retest it right after and see if that disappears. <laughs> Because a lot of this visual motion, a lot of these visual issues, a lot of this saccadic motion, a lot of this function um, is, is predicated on, on neck dysfunction um, because the eyes and the neck are so integrated, right? When, you're, when your eyes move to the right, your head has to turn at that same it, – it's meant to turn that same direction. I actually posted a, a video of this on my Instagram. You guys can go look at it. Um, uh, I was playing around with, uh, and that's that, that, that the concussion doc um, on on Instagram. But if you go there, it, it, it's talking about vestibular problems and, and visual motion. But if 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 you take a patient, you guys can try this, and you just put your hands up right in the base of the uh, of of your skull on the suboccipital muscles, and if you look side to side, like if you just move your eyes side to side, so do it right now. Just go up, just feel right underneath your suboccipital area, and then just just your eyes. Keep your head still. Move your eyes side to side. <laughs> what do you feel? Feel the muscle kicking in a little bit. You feel that muscle fire, right? And it's not just that. Every single muscle that's designed to turn your head right fires when you look right. Every single muscle that's designed to turn your head left when you look left fires. So then you get into cervical referral patterns, right? And you get into all these different things because the cervical referral patterns, let's say for suboccipitals, the inferior oblique muscle refers to Right behind the eyes, that's the referral pattern. If you have a really tight inferior oblique muscle, it'll refer pain behind your eye or it'll refer pain to the forehead or maybe on the side of the head or anything like that. So these people come in and they go, oh, I have headaches when I read. Okay. Is that because there's too much cognitive load and you should stop reading? Is that because you have a visual tracking problem? Is that because you have an ocular, like, a, like an extraocular muscle issue where you're, you know, either your strength or whatever, and we have to rehab that? 
Or is it because every time you look side to side as you're reading the words on the page, your infraoblique muscles are firing and that's contracting. And if you have a dysfunction there, you get referred pain now referring into your forehead and your eyes. <laughs> now, if I were to take you and then release those suboccipital muscles, your headaches are gone and you can read and your eyes move smoothly because there isn't that, there's this neural kind of feedback loop, right? Where when your eyes move, it gets messages from where you are in space, your neck muscles, everything like that. And if there's dysfunction there, there's a skip. There's a skip in the signal. There's, a, there's something that goes wrong and you feel weird. You feel off. You might feel dizzy, right? So neck, huge component. And I think not enough people know enough about it. And this is something that I've like dove into hard. And then number five. So we're on number four. That's number five psychological, right? So like I was saying before, you forget your cell phone, all that stuff. The, but there's other things too. There's, there's even just anxiety, depression, things like that. We know that if you have pre-existing conditions like that in the mental health space, uh, you're more likely to have persistent symptoms. So is that because the, of the injury itself? Is that concussion or is that just a, a further manifestation of your symptoms? And if the management has been sit in a dark room and avoid all social contact and don't go to school and don't, well, now you're falling behind in school. Your marks are starting to slip. You're starting to get a little bit worried about it because now you're in grade 12 and you have to get good marks and get into a good university. Guess what? Your anxiety now makes you feel dizzy, makes you feel like you can't concentrate. It makes you feel, you know, so there's that, you know? How much of this are we creating and how much of this is pre-existing that just comes to the forefront? Um, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a wild thing. So unless you understand how all this stuff kind of pairs together uh, and unless you get a circle up around you with all these professionals you can refer to, you know, and unless you know how to integrate this stuff and these systems together, um, you know, you're always going to be fighting that battle. And you're never going to be able to kind of really hone in on those skills and really be able to kind of help these patients. So those are the five trajectories. Like, if we're going to use that term. But what I find is that it's not, you know, you are cervical. It's you are, you know, 30% cervical. You got a 20% physiologic issue. Uh, and, and you got a little bit of a visual tracking issue. And what, I will say this, 100% of the time you have, you have some psychological element to it. And it's not that you're crazy or anything like that, but it's just misinformation. It's, it's patients that are that are reading crap on Google and listening to the news and getting information from, you know, the same, you know, doctor that's still telling them to rest, you know, for the past 10 years. And this is the thing, like they're still giving them this misinformation or like the, the healthcare provider is getting the same information that, that the public is getting from the news. And so when a patient comes in with a concussion that thinks, Hey, yeah, like CTE is a bad thing. Like, oh my God, concussions are bad. My brain is damaged. And then you get the healthcare provider that saw the same 60 Minutes episode that goes, yeah, yeah, it is it's real bad. Concussions are bad. Well, holy <laughs> crap, right? It's that. It's just not. It's having that lack of education uh, and not being able to really answer the questions your patients have that I think is is hurting a lot of patients. Yeah, man. Right. Yeah. It's huge. And that goes, and that's not just concussion. I think that's everything. I think that's a lot of things, right? Concussion just happens to be the flavor of the month that everyone's into, that everyone wants to talk about. So that was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I tend, I tend to, uh, to go off and, um, actually does talking to us, talking to some of the boys around the office today. And, uh, they're like, well, you'll go way over here, and then they'll have to kind of pull you back here. <laughs> and I'm like, well, whatever. I'll just go, you know? 
Yeah, just go. I mean, this this is this is great, and this is like there's so much good information here, um, and I'm just like, really excited because you know we have an opportunity to kind of like showcase all this information, and we're learning a ton from you right now. So, you know, we just really appreciate the opportunity that you're even here talking with us. So this is cool. Yeah, I, I could talk about this obviously forever, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, it's something that uh, I'm I'm really passionate about, and you know, really really get into. So, um, you know, I've had I've had fun kind of chatting with you guys. This is awesome. This is I think because we're already at two hours and ten minutes, we obligatorily have to probably wrap it up because yeah. this is like already two podcasts worth of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I will. I will actually try to. I'll, I'll, I'll edit it into two podcasts, but I'll probably release them both on Sunday night. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think um, one of the things we are we are doing to um, to try and kind of make. PTs aware of, of the role they play and ATs as well. Um, the role that they play and, and, and all this stuff, we're going to go into, um, we're, we're actually hosting a free webinar okay. uh, on, on uh, March 4th. I think it's a Sunday, okay. Sunday afternoon, March 4th. Um, uh, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to, I'm going to break into uh, um, <laughs> the whole thing. So I'm going to go through just a lot of the evidence around, you know, certain conditions, mostly from a rehab standpoint. Um, I know we didn't cover kind of too much of it, but I'm going to get into just the evidence around that stuff and just the effectiveness and really drill into some of the research studies that are on that. So, um, you know, that, that might be something that people are, are, are interested in if they liked, you know, what we talked about today, I'm sure they'd be interested in learning more. Yeah, if, if oh, for you can sure. send we, us, we can put that on blast. Yeah, if you can send us any like info about that, like if you've got like a Instagram post or any information on your website, like Mike said, let us have that, and we will we will get definitely get that out there. And I will we will both for sure make a point to be a part of that. Um, and sit yeah, in for and sure. Listen. Um, I think I think Rick was posting something today on it. Um, on I think our Facebook page, and I think it'll probably go up on Instagram as well. But uh, I think we're going to just host it on a on either a landing page or whatever. I think you probably find it through completeconcussions.com too. So um, there's probably a few avenues, but uh, I'll be sure to get you guys that link. Nice, perfect. That'd be great. All right, Mike, it's it's that time. Yes. So, Dr. Marshall, there's uh, there's one question that we ask everyone at the show. Um, and so, you know, we here at the Movie Docs, we believe in always moving forward in all that you do. So based on all of your previous experience and knowledge and life and love, the pursuit of happiness, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to anyone listening to this show to help them be the best versions of themselves? Add value. <laughs> always, right? If you, can, if you can provide people with, you know, and it's whatever you do, if you are... Um, you know, a therapist and, you know, learn about it, be the best therapist, try to add as much value as you can um, to your patients because that'll come back to you, you know, tenfold. So, um, you know, giving is receiving kind of thing. And so I'd say, I'd say add value. I love it. That's great. So, Dr. Marshall, we, we can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to be on our show today. If anyone's listening to the show wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way that they can do that? Um, at concussion doc on Instagram, uh, it's actually concussion underscore doc. Um, I, I would say that's probably the best way. Uh, they could probably shoot me an email as well. Um, it's actually through that account. You can email me, but dr.cmarshall at outlook.com. Um, and, uh, you can check us out on Facebook, complete concussions.com, uh, at our website. And, um, yeah. Perfect. That's so awesome. We haven't, we have never done this yet. And I don't, I don't think Mike is aware of what I'm about to say. 
But based on the past, sure, I love it. I, I know you're going to love it because we're on the same wavelength, but I just don't know that you know what, what words are going to come out of my mouth yet. Um, we would <laughs> like to make you the first honorary movement doc. The first honorary movement? What does this entail? So, uh, well, when Mike and I, like when we originally came up with the whole concept of the movement docs, the the idea was to be something, to create like a something that wasn't just like our names, that it could be something greater than ourselves and encompass more than just two people. And so obviously the movement docs is like our little podcast and Instagram handle and everything else. But um, being is that we try to reach out to a lot of cool people that have a lot of great information to share with everybody else. And we all, everybody that's come on here is all about like, you know, spreading, spreading knowledge and trying to help the professions of rehab as a whole move forward we would like to give you an honorary award and we may try to get you like an address or something and send you like a little certificate. Um, but yeah, sure. we would love to make you the first honorary movement doc. I'll post it on my, uh, on, on my Instagram. <laughs> post it on my wall. Sweet. <laughs> That'd be great. Oh, no, thanks. Oh, that's perfect. Sweet. All right. Well, I guess, I guess we just, do, do we say goodbye? How do, how do you, how do you want to do this, Mike? <laughs> I, I don't want to. But don't 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 hop off though, because we need your we need your MP3 file. Yeah, 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 Imagine I just left and just screwed the whole thing. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. But, well, thanks again, everybody. <laughs> go ahead, yeah. go, Jake. Oh, I was just gonna yeah. say thanks again for coming on. This has been like my we, pleasure. We had no idea what to expect, and you have. I mean, not that we had expectations to begin with, but you have blown any expectation that we could have had completely out of the water. Um, and <laughs> it's been absolutely amazing. So you guys are making you. me blush now. Thank, making you. Me blush. <laughs> thank you. It's, no, thanks. I've, I've, I've had fun too. I always enjoy this type of stuff. So, uh, and anytime I can, anyone gives me a mic, I'll talk. <laughs> well, we, I mean, you have one, but we also gave you Mike Fitzpatrick, one of, you know, it's my counterpart. So. <laughs> <laughs> He's listed as Mikey Fitz on here. <laughs> oh man! All right, well I'm just gonna hit the. I'm gonna stop the recording right, now. Don't get off! Don't get off! Don't get off! I'm just gonna hit okay, the. I'm gonna I hit the end button. Okay. I'll be here. I'll be here. All right. <laughs>